Hello, it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites, a concept originally devised because Tom is so bloody... Oh, not sure what happened there. Tom here in the editing suite. I think Jamie must have sat on the mic. Probably a good thing. Save my blushes, as I expect he was going to heap praise on my head for my hard work editing, publishing, and sometimes removing his more volcanic tirades. I must pay him a visit at the end of this. Meanwhile, on with the show. Today we're going to saunter cheerily back into the darkness because the subject is Death Squad. Hey, is that really a pizza in that box? So what are Death Squads? They are the executioners, the enforcers, the people who disappear others. And they do so on behalf of drug cartels, crime bosses, secret police chiefs and despots. And the advantage of using them is that they have reach. They can understand the local area, the back streets, the taverns, and most importantly of all, they have deniability. And that's why so many of these murky regimes, so many of these drug cartels use the irregulars, these paramilitaries. And so many of the death squads are made up of former policemen or former soldiers. They have the expertise and they have the reach. And there are certain things that define them, that show their character, quite apart from the killing. First of all, quite often they have a signature. They have a particular way of killing. The Russians, for example, have always favoured defenestration, throwing people from windows. Back in 1948, uh, Jan Masaryk, the Czech foreign minister, plummeted three stories from his foreign office window in Prague. Uh, that was probably Stalin's men at work. And there's a long history of that. Back in the 1990s, it was Putin's people, his allies, who probably threw the heads of the KGB property department from their balconies and windows so they could take over the KGB property portfolio. That's been going on for, for decades. There was a man called James Lemesurer who founded the White Helmets, the civil defence force in Syria and the rebel-held areas. And they became famous for helping civilians being attacked by the Russians and the Syrians and the Iranians. But he was found dead, uh, having fallen from his window in Istanbul into a cobble street. Who knows whether that was murder? But it certainly has the hallmarks of the Russians. So that's the signature element. Then, of course, there's the fact that death squads often change allegiance. In Bolivia, in the 1970s, there was a German Nazi called Joachim Fiebelkorn, and he ran this bunch of mercenaries called the Fiancés of Death, and they worked for drug lords, killing others, uh, snatching rivals, disappearing people. But 
come 1980, they ended up being employed by the Bolivian government, the generals who wanted to take over the narco business. And they simply changed their name to the Special Commando Group because guess what? Uh, German Nazis just love their Sonderkommando and Einsatzgruppen and Special Commando Groups. So they were back killing again and were answerable to the likes of Klaus Barbie, the Butcher of Lyon, the ex-Gestapo chief. So they simply get recycled, the people who work for these groups. Then, of course, there's the, the matter of the messiness of the killings. And quite often, they aren't just silent killings in the back streets. Quite often, they're public. They're there to, to make a point. Uh, or they're there for the amusement of the person who orders the killings. Uh, you, you could look at uh, 2014 and the deaths of those 43 student teachers in the town of Iguala near, in Mexico. And they had commandeered buses to go to a protest, but those buses happened to be carrying heroin. And the local drug lords didn't like that. So the police who were in cahoots with them simply stopped the buses and handed the students over to be tortured to death. And there have been a few remains found, but the rest of the bodies haven't been found. But you know that those poor students had the most appalling ordeal before they died. And that's not rare in Mexico. They found 5,000 uh, bodies scattered around the country. They found 55 down a mine shaft in 2010. So that's death squads for you. If you look at the killing of Herberts Kukurs, the former Latvian Nazi who is the deputy commander of the notorious Aras Commando who killed tens of thousands of Jews in World War II, uh, he was tracked down to Brazil by Mossad and he was enticed to go to Uruguay, to Montevideo, uh, walked into a house and there were five Mossad agents in their underpants because they knew it was going to be a bloody affair. And they smashed his head with a hammer and shot him five times. And when his body was found, there was a note pinned to it saying, from those who can never forget. So it is a messy business. It's an unpleasant business. And that takes me really to the first type of death squad. And I'm going to call it revenge because that has a lot to do with death squads. Because you're know, talking about a Mossad killing a former Nazi, well, post-World War II, uh, fine examples of death squads were the Nakam group, the revenge group, uh, the 50 Holocaust survivors from the Lublin area who decided that it was going to be a nation for a nation, that six million Jews had been killed and they were going to kill six million Germans. And they set out to do a lot of damage. They were headed up by a man called Abba Kovner. First of all, they decided that they were going to poison the water supply into Nuremberg, and they found an engineer who found the precise point to do that. But Kovner couldn't bring enough arsenic back from Palestine when he went out there. And there were plenty of Jews who did not want to follow the revenge program because they thought it would upset the negotiations for an independent Israeli state. People like David Ben-Gurion didn't like it at all, the concept. He wanted to concentrate on politics out there, not revenge back in Germany. 
but NACAM continued. Uh, they failed to poison the water supply, so they then went on to try and uh, kill tens of thousands of former Nazis, Gestapo and SS men uh, based at the Langwasser camp near Nuremberg. And there are about 36,000 of these people in different camps. So what NACAM did, they got their operatives into the bakery and started poisoning the loaves with arsenic. But they didn't really put enough arsenic on and 2,000 uh, former Nazis or Nazis who were held in the camps uh, fell ill. 200 were hospitalized, but no one is believed to have died. There were all sorts of plans at the time. There was uh, a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust called Tullia Friedman who set up the Vienna uh, Historical Archive. But he planned to blow up a camp in Austria. But he was worried about killing uh, American and British servicemen who were guarding the camp. And it probably wouldn't have been practical anyway. I mean, when Nakam wanted to poison the men at the Langwasser camp near Nuremberg, they decided to put arsenic into all the black loaves of bread because they knew that the Germans would be eating that, whereas the Allied and guards would be eating white bread. So that's how they separated the two. So you know, there was always this problem. And then there was the ad hoc groups uh, from units such as the Jewish Brigade who were based at Tarvisio in northern Italy after the war. And men from that brigade went out on their own or in pairs and, and started killing SS people they could find. There were three men who went out and, with a truck and they were breaking their necks and strangling former SS soldiers and officers. It's believed that about 500 Germans might have been killed in that manner. So that's revenge. Then, of course, there's a second group, and I'd call that security. And a good example of that is the IRA nutting squad. That was the unofficial title for what was officially known as the Internal Security Unit, the ISU. And it just shows how so many of these paramilitaries disguise, camouflage their bestial blue-collar psychopathy with sort of official terms and military terms. They talked about courts martial and uh, discipline and internal discipline. But in fact, they were just paramilitary thugs playing judge, jury and executioner. And they'd take people down to a terraced house in Dundalk. There's a great description by the IRA man who was eventually killed by the IRA called Eamon Collins, who gave information to the British. And he described the smell in the house of fear and sweat and terror. And this is where people were electrocuted, beaten to death, half drowned, shot. Uh, and th there were examples of IRA men killing others with agricultural hose, cutting, cutting their heads off. Um, but not to be outdone, there were members of the Ulster Volunteer Force who stabbed people to death. One stabbed a Catholic to death and cut the breasts of the man's uh, Protestant girlfriend in a country lane. It's just terrible people. And all you have to do is look at the dead eyes of people like Martin McGuinness to know the, the kind of 
killers one is dealing with. But again, that was a type of death squad. And it, it was such a murky, uh, fragmented, treacherous world. You get people like Freddy Scapitici, who was apparently, purportedly, Agent Steakknife, uh, working for British intelligence, who, again, allegedly was involved in the murder of up to 40 people. So these sort of undercurrents, these allegiances are so difficult to pin down and they're so fluid, they can change so often. And then the third group, I suppose, uh, the third type of discord, I would call oppression because they've been used to really clean the streets, to enforce uh, the rule of a dictator or a president or a despot over the years. You look at President Duterte of the Philippines when he was mayor of Davao in the Philippines uh, for, I think, over 20 years. Uh, he basically gave a license for paramilitary groups for the Davao Death Squad, the DDS, to go out and murder street kids and drug dealers and criminals uh, on the basis that if you did wrong, you were uh, a licensed target, really. People were paid between $100 and $1,000 to go on motorbikes and kill people in public places with knives or clubs or with guns. It was pretty ruthless and over a thousand people died in Davao and similar groups sprung up in towns and cities across the Philippines and now as president of the Philippines it's believed that uh, 6,000 minimum have been killed by death squads and maybe up to 30,000 but no investigators have been allowed in so it's very difficult to tell. Uh, in 1973 in Chile when Pinochet took over there was a group that went around by Puma helicopter, uh, run by General Stark, who, who went around killing political prisoners out in the provinces because Pinochet thought that the provincial military governors and officers uh, weren't strong enough against political dissent. So his team went out to kill people. Similarly, in Argentina, under Juan Perón, in the 1970s, when his term as president came round again, when he took over again, there was the AAA, the Argentine Anti-Communist Alliance, and they were known to have uh, attacked senators, rival politicians, political dissidents, killed Jesuit priests. But not to be outdone, you go to El Salvador, and there you got the terrible atlicatal battalion, the anti-counterinsurgency battalion, who were involved in that terrible massacre when they killed up to a thousand villagers uh, by telling them they were delivering food, but in fact they were delivering death. So all the way along you get these sorts of terrible events, these sorts of happenings, and it's always counterinsurgency units or death squads who are involved. But that brings us really to the postscript and the question, will death squads survive? Are they necessary? Will the drug barons, will the cartels, will the despots keep on using them? And the answer is probably no, because technology will take over. If you look at March 2020, it was the first known use of drones with artificial intelligence that were deployed and employed 
by the government of national accord in Libya to attack rival paramilitary groups. And these Turkish cargo drones with facial recognition were sent in swarms to attack individuals. And that is probably the future. Why do you need people on the street? Why do you need people raiding houses and homes when you can simply send in nanobug drones to go through windows and bore a hole in people's heads or blow up. I mean, that is really the future. It is going to be artificial intelligence. You might not see the man in the street, the man lurking in the doorway, waiting to mount a hit on an opponent. So that is the history of the death squad. It's a really grim one, but artificial intelligence is probably the future. Anyway, I've just heard the doorbell, so I'm just going to go and answer the door and um, see if uh, see if anyone's there. Uh, hello, can I help? So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton, and his name was James Jackson. However, I should be able to resurrect him in time for our next episode, which is on camouflage, and will be published on the 1st of March. Thank you, and I hope you have better luck than Jamie.